Well, welcome to episode three of The Prof and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, and I'm here with uh, TENS political editor and professor, Peter Van Onselen. Hello, Peter. G'day, Hugh. Great to be back with you. Yeah, look, have you got excited about this campaign yet? I don't know that I'd use the word excited, but I'm interested. I guess that's a good thing. You're paid to be interested. (laughs) I think I'd be interested anyway. I'm too much of a political junkie not to be, but excited is definitely the wrong word. Uh, This campaign, so far at least, strikes me as a, a fairly tame start. I mean, I know there's been some controversies, no doubt we'll get into that, but there's not real fire and brimstone yet in terms of the two sides of politics or some of the individuals involved when, as we've talked about before, there probably should be because most elections are much more Tweedledum, Tweedledee-like than this one, but maybe that's something that will happen more in the latter weeks of the campaign. Peter, can I put it on the record? I'm going to put it out there. This is the most boring, most uninteresting election campaign I have ever seen. I reckon you've got a short memory, Hugh. I, I think we feel this way about all of them. Well, I don't know. There's a feeling sometimes that there's a bit of history at stake. And, you know, I know them way back to the early 80s. And uh, I remember the excitement through those Hawke-Keating days, you know, the Joe for PM. Would it be Peacock? Would it be Howard? There was all these sorts of things. There was a sense that there was something at stake. And even through the Howard years, there was a sense that there was something at stake. And even as you point out, that there is, in fact, a lot of policy difference between these two sides. So there's, this vote is actually going to count for something. I just have a feeling everyone is sick to death of it on a level that we haven't seen before. And, and what strikes me about that is, is that they're getting out there and they're working out through their lines. They've got to get their images out. They've tried to reinforce their messages. And yet more than any other time, I think this is an election campaign that could be turned on moments unscripted moments that can get up. It's interesting what you say. I mean, there's, there's a few different parts. Let, let me start with the, you know, it's more boring than most campaigns idea. The reason I think you and probably a lot of voters feel that way, I was joking before, I, I have a sense of it as well. I think one of the reasons that a lot of us feel that way is because politics as the years and the decades roll by is just becoming more and more controlled more and more risk-averse, and the people that go into politics are less and less colourful because of the invasive nature of the modern media and, and all the rest of it. So you don't get that many Bob Hawkes, Paul Keatings, frankly, even someone like a John Howard, who's at least was in large part an ideologue, these figures aren't there. And when we look at the current leadership as well, neither Scott Morrison nor Bill Shorten are particularly inspiring. So you add the, the sort of dour nature of the two of them to the modern media cycle and what it does to the life in politics. And I think those are factors that make it less interesting. You know, once upon a time, people were prepared to have a bit more of a laugh or a crack as part of their campaign, whereas now it's about avoiding the error rather than about seizing the opportunity, which might be a risky way to do your politics. So I think I think that's part of it. Um, but, yes, you know, this, this campaign, I really do think, as far as the issues go there is more to it than almost any other election. I mean, I've seen others write this, but yes, 1993, John Hewson had a very radical agenda in fight back that would have taken the country in a different direction. But interestingly, we went in that direction in some part anyway over 11 years of Howard. I think you have to go back to 1972, quite frankly, to see the stark difference between what these two sides of politics are offering up. They are so different uh, you, for the, the country. You couldn't imagine two politicians more different than Gough Whitlam and I Bill know. Shorten. 
I mean, Gough Whitlam, the emperor of politics who bestrode the nation in his own imaginations and was willing to sweep everything in his own vision, and Bill Shorten? Isn't it funny? I think Bill Shorten's radical agenda, and I don't say that in a polemic way, and I don't say it neither positively nor negatively, but changing from where we are now with all of his changes that he's putting forward, it is a radical agenda. I mean, there's all the tax stuff. And it's a real agenda. Oh, it's not. It's not small target, Not even Kim close. Beasley stuff. Not this is much close. more like Hewson. Put a whole bunch of stuff out there and see if it can withstand the slings and arrows. But what's interesting is I felt, looking back at Hewson both at the time and, and researching it since, fight back was his agenda. You know, he was the doctor of economics, the former bureaucrat and staffer and, and business person who had this agenda that he thought could drag Australia out of the recession, you know, if you like, or the aftermath of the recession. This isn't Bill Shorten's agenda. This is the New South Wales Labor rights. It's Chris Bowen's agenda more than Bill Shorten's. But Bill Shorten had to accede to it as far back as 2016 to retain his authority as leader. Now, that's interesting. So you're saying that the faceless men... (laughs) It's a bit unfair with Chris Bowen, but for all the fact that he's been there as shadow treasurer now for a long time, he's not publicly a well-known figure... But you think this is Chris Bowen? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is very much his... Or the tax side of it is very, very much his agenda. And he's the one with the authority of the notional leader of the New South Wales right, the biggest faction within the biggest state within the Labor Party. He's the one pushing this, you know, and Bill Shorten had no choice but to accept it. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't have a philosophical belief in it. I'm sure he probably does. But that's not what drove it. That is what drove it for John Hewson. Here, this is the Bowen agenda. So if they win government, depending on how they win, and then they go about trying to implement it, and depending on how that goes, this will be the treasurer taking ownership of it. And that actually is a little bit like the way Paul Keating would argue that that was his hand in the microeconomic reforms of the 80s rather than Bob Hawke goes to fight forever in a day about who gets to dominate that. But this is a Bowen agenda rather than a Shorten agenda. Shorten, for political reasons, had to go along with it so that he wasn't if you like, going to lose the support of the New South Wales right when there were some sticky moments for him in the past. I wonder if in a generation's time people talk about, you know, oh, Shorten Bowen, oh, giants like Hawke <laughs> and Keating. I don't think we're ever going to have that in modern leadership anymore. I mean, that, that's a whole other podcast, I think. But uh, well, no. well, well, We should talk about Chris Bowen then because if he's so significant, there is still on the polls the likelihood Labor will win. Yep. This government will get in there, the lab, Labor will go and form government, in which case Chris Bowen becomes the key to the whole game. What do we know about Chris Bowen? If it is his agenda, where does it come from? I I think he's an ideologue, uh, certainly around economics. Like, he does have a strong interest in it. In the first incarnation of the Labor government that he was part of, the Rudd-Gillard years, he was always a Rudd man and he was part of the the coup, if you like, to remove Gillard. He was a junior minister at the very start of the Rudd years and then he was somebody that got rapid promotion. Interestingly, I think he's someone who... he's. He started in financial services as his area of ministerial expertise before he got stuck in immigration and the like, which he didn't have fun in at all. And, of course, he became treasurer at the absolute last minute when Rudd came back. So he has been treasurer before, but only for the briefest of periods, you know, literally a couple of months. But he's been shadow treasurer the whole time in opposition. And I think he took the view that, look... I'm not going to just sit on my hands here. I don't want a small target strategy. I I want an agenda that I have a mandate for as a treasurer if we win the election and I'm prepared to fall over fighting for it. I think that's the key. He was prepared to fall over both in the internal fights 
to get these policies up, as well as in the public fight uh, at the election. Now, you know, he's not over the line yet, but I think that's been his view from the start. So what compromises is he making? You call him an ideologue. Mm. Uh, he's from the right. Uh, he wants business traditionally as the right does. He wants business to succeed because there's a perception that successful business does lead to better jobs and so on for, for workers. It deals with the issue of unemployment, which yep. is always the bugbear at the bottom of Labor nightmares. Uh, I mean, but he's a big taxing treasurer, assuming he gets to the treasury. That's his plan. He claims that the tax-to-GDP ratio won't go above, I think, 24.3 at the moment. It's being kept under 23.9, that's the government's goal. I'm not sure about that. I, I think that the tax rate or the percentage has to go higher than that based on some of what he's doing, but maybe there's more givebacks that we don't know about yet in their agenda in the latter part of the campaign. That's the only thing I can think of. Where he's ideological about this, though, and he's written a book in the past, it's more a pamphlet, <laughs> it's quite small, but and he's written other books about treasurers during his time, which are more substantial. So he's, he's really invested in the sort of the history of the Treasury position and what Treasurers have articulated in the past. But I think where the ideology comes from for him is that he genuinely believes that reducing inequality is the key to a healthy economy, OK? Now, he believes that inequality is made worse by all the tax concessions that currently exist around capital gains tax concessions, around negative gearing, and, of course, the nature of the franking credit structure as well. And super was something that he was big on reform. The government ended up doing it, but they essentially stole a version of his model when they did so. So he can take some ownership for that, at least intellectually. He's ideological about all of that, I believe, because he's, he's a social... Um, liberal, if I could put it that way. He's a sort of right-wing Labor person. And his approach was very much one of the market economic view now is that reducing inequality is the way to a healthy economy and a healthy society and we need to get rid of tax loopholes or concessions which are overtly to the advantaged to the advantage of the privileged of high-income earners. And he wants to do something about that. Now, I would argue we can talk about this another time, that perhaps he goes too far on that front with there, his agenda. There is considerable uh, empirical evidence that societies that are less unequal, or to put it another way, more equal, have lower levels of crime, yep. have lower levels of mental health uh, difficulties, are basically full of happier people. But in order to achieve that in a place like Australia, which still has a little bit of the tearaway about it, that... It, it it has to involve putting brakes on wealthier people. It does. And that is, in essence, you get into a bit of a freedom argument there, don't you, about the right. right to make money and succeed in what you do. And, that, and that's the liberal response. Then, you know, the, there was a you know, classic on the campaign trail moment where the shadow finance spokesperson, he made the point, he, he called them um, handouts, you know, the... the, the, you know, the government, if you like, um, are, you know, providing handouts for the wealthy with their tax cuts. And, well, hang on a second, you can agree <laughs> with the Labor plan rather than the government plan, but still not describe them as a handout. They're people that earn their money, but the government are just saying you get to retain more of the tax, or, you know, which would otherwise be taxed. So the, the rhetoric is interesting on this as well. But uh, look, the other problem for me on the economic debate, which I think is really interesting, is that you can intellectually agree from an equality perspective with a lot of what the Labor Party is putting forward. 
You can then have a debate about whether the time suited, because the economy is a bit wobbly at the moment, including the global economy. But the other argument that I find fascinating, in a globalised world, it is so much harder for an individual country to buck the global trend. And I'm not saying that this is still the global trend because there's some fight back here, but when the global trend of free markets and reducing taxes has been in full flight, well, capital can be in flight and so can human capital to go overseas to those lower taxing jurisdictions. Like it or not, you've got to play in that space in a globalised environment. That's the rub. You've got the domestic reality that I think people like the idea of copying higher taxes to get better services to reduce inequality, but can you do that as an island in a globalised world when you could create a flight of capital. So the seriously wealthy folk and those who would argue they are wealth generators because mm-hmm. they're the ones with the ideas and the access to capital simply say, you know what, the United States is looking pretty good right now or Singapore or somewhere else. Exactly. And look, yes, the argument to counter that um, is the argument that, well, hang on, no, Australia is naturally a great country to be in so people will choose it anyway. And there's some truth to that. Or some sectors can't do that because the banks can't go over there, nor can the miners, for example, with the reality of what gets dug out of the ground. These are all true counter-arguments to what I've described, but that doesn't account for things like technological development or the financial sector or wealthy individuals whose skills are easily transferable in business from country to country. So it is a conundrum because a lot of people, and perhaps I'm one of them, philosophically agree with policies that will reduce inequality and are prepared to pay more for that, but also look at the world globally and say, like it or not, if your, for example, company tax rate isn't competitive globally, there will be some flight out of your country. What do you do? Those are those are two counter positions. Do, do you think there's a sense? I, I grew up in, despite it being the Cold War at the time, in a somewhat optimistic world in that people thought that so long as we weren't subject to nuclear annihilation at any minute because someone's hit the wrong button in the Kremlin or in the White House, that basically life was going to get better. We we're in a world of improvement. And I just look at what people consume for entertainment nowadays. There's so much end-of-the-world dystopian, uh, you know, whether it's the, the, you know, the zombie apocalypse or it's, it's something else. We seem to be living in an increasingly fearful age. And part of that is a sense that the world is not heading in a direction that is going to be as benign as it used to be, whether it's disease and epidemic hitting us, whether it's global warming, whether it's uh, just mass people fleeing from one place to another and and fetching up on your shores or overcrowding and so on, that people, I think, are more fearful and perhaps more keen to see that the place that they live in, they can take a stake in it and say, I want this to be a good place to live. And that makes it more possible to make a case for a fairer, calmer, more even society rather than a devil-take-the-hindmost type of society. But also playing into what you're describing, I mean, there's those big-picture concerns that people have, you know, around things like, as you say, climate change and so forth. But then also, just even at the micro level, these days, and there's been plenty written about this, individuals, parents, are concerned that they're going to leave a worse economy or a worse structure or set of opportunities. Certainly a worse environment. Yep, for their child or children than they receive themselves. And that is a real change because we've been so used to, as you say, despite the Cold War and all those sort of things, generation to generation, things have gotten better in the West and in Australia in particular, you know, growth and improvement. And 
Yes, that will continue in a sort of technological sense, but maybe not in all these other senses, you know, lower standard of living, more crowded, more congestion, the environment, as you say, um, international insecurity because of the nature of warfare as it is now in the sort of age of terrorism and so on. It's, it's, it's scary for a lot of people. And the other thing is, which is, I think, exacerbating it, is that it's always been scary. In fact, in many respects, it's probably been a lot more scary in, in historical moments with the nature of warfare versus where we're at now. But information wasn't as easily accessible. You know, these days it's easy to scare yourself because you can jump on the internet, whereas in days gone by there was a much more controlled way that people would receive information and that was perhaps calming in a way that we don't have today. And people would still march off to war imagining it was an adventure. Exactly, don't do that anymore. exactly. Need a break from ad breaks? Join Channel Access to enjoy binge-worthy shows and live news ad-free. Stream your favourite Channel 10 and US shows like Survivor, NCIS and I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Discover exclusive originals, plus watch fast-tracked series before they premiere on Channel 10. Watch Channel Access whenever, wherever and never miss your favourite show again. Join now and get one month free for new subscribers at channelaccess.com.au. Welcome back to The Prof and the Hack with uh, Peter Van Onselen and me, Hugh Rimmington. Just a thought that occurred to me and that is because I'm trying to understand why it is that the sense of of the frisson of excitement that used to exist, I feel, in the past over a federal election campaign, particularly where there was a prospect of a change of government, doesn't seem to be there. And I do wonder whether all those leadership changes in office since 2010 have conditioned the Australian voter to understand something that they didn't understand before. Previously, the one good thing about an election was that you would get to decide collectively who was going to be the Prime Minister of the country. And what we've seen since 2010 is that um, most of the decisions about who's going to be the Prime Minister of the country is not determined by voters but by coups within a party. Do you think that that is feeding into the sense of broader disillusionment about the whole political process? I think it is. Um, But I would also say that it's an example of history repeating itself. We are living through it in the post-Howard period where there was a solid 11 and a half years of, of just him. So... In a sense, it feels like, oh, what's suddenly happening? But if you go a bit further back, you know, you had all those years of Menzies when he was Prime Minister from 49 till 66, and then you had the cycle of leaders. Now, you know, in fairness, Harold Holt drowned. He wasn't removed. But then, you know, John um, John Gorton was removed by Billy McMahon, and, you know, you, you sort of had that cycle going on then, which is not dissimilar to what we see today or have seen more recently. But we were used to... 11 and a half years of Howard years. And I was reflecting on this, you know, with looking at a, a class of students, first-year students at university uh, who were, you know, a whole first-year politics course and they're all only, you know, 18 or thereabouts. But for them, as 18-year-olds, all they've seen for their sort of life from a child through in terms of their memory to now becoming adults is the chaos because all I remember growing up was the sort of the, the stability of the Hawke period, yes, with a quick takeover by Keating, and then all of the Howard period, whereas for them, through their formative years, they've just seen the chaos. And I do think, therefore, for those younger voters, that contributes to their unwillingness to, to, to sort of join up to one side of politics or the other because they say, well, these sides of politics can't even make up their own mind about who the leader is. Then underpinning all of that, you've got the realities of the system, not wanting to 
get too lectury about it, but, you know, the public doesn't choose the Prime Minister. It's just always thought that it does. The Parliament chooses the Prime Minister. That's the Westminster system. You know, the only person you choose is your local member. And then your local member, he or she then goes into the Parliament and makes their decision about who they choose as Prime Minister. And, yes, we have a party system where one side goes for the opposition leader and the other side goes for the Prime Minister of the day, but they can change it away from an election. We're just not used to it because it hasn't happened before. And then we've had this... And we still don't like it. Oh, we we don't like it. I mean, I think this feeds interestingly into the whole Republic debate. If Shorten wins, something that hasn't been much talked about is he said that he will have a plebiscite about the model and then the model for a Republic and then if that's successful, again, to have another referendum on the Republic. Uh, One of the models that I think Australians probably intuitively like is the model of directly electing your president because then you're choosing. You know, they, they think or we think that we do it with our Prime Minister. We feel like we have ownership over it from one election to the next. But technically but that, it's a parliamentary call. Yeah, but that could be so desirable. I'm not a direct electionist. I know that's a popular one. <laughs> but because then you wind up with a president who has more mandate than a Prime Minister and uh, because they've been directly elected by the people... And there's going to be a coalition. There's going to be a constitutional crisis at oh, some point. You would have to rearrange the whole system. I look, I, my my mum was American. I've got American citizenship. I've I've got greater sympathy for the popularly elected president. Not that technically that's what happens in America because they've got, of course, the electoral colleges. But uh, it would require a rewrite of the system. One thing I can completely agree with you about, and this is you know, Malcolm Turnbull's view as well from when he ran the ARM campaign. You can't have a directly elected president who is akin to a Governor-General and then still have a Parliament with a Prime Minister. You can't do that. You would have to change it so that the Parliament no longer has a Prime Minister somehow. And, look, you'd have to completely rejig the system and possibly Americanise it with executive outside of Parliament. It's a whole other debate. I just don't think the Australian people, seeing what's going on in the United States over the last couple of years, are going to say, yeah, I know, an ideal system. Let's follow (laughs) that one. It's the American system. So we'll see what happens with that if if, uh, Bill Shorten wins the election and suddenly starts uh, bringing on the Republic uh, debate and a vote. There'll be lots of newsprint uh, being spent on that one. Now, one of the things about elections, and I think this campaign in particular, because no one's paying any attention, this is my deep belief, um, is that moments start to matter. And we haven't had too many moments, the unscripted moment, Um, but there have been a few, Mm. and they can reveal a little. Any moments caught your eye? Well, the, the, the biggest moment, I think, has been Peter Dutton's gaffe. Uh, but then, you know, you've, you've got a series of other little bits here and there. Like, I, it was interesting seeing how awkward it was for the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, turning up in Michael Suker's electorate. He has to go there because it's, it's Deakin, it's in Victoria, it's not a marginal seat, it's 6.3%, but it's in play and it's a risky seat. But, of course, you know, as you would expect in the wake of a, a coup, it was last August, it was eight months ago, but it's still raw. Straight away, he has to go there and sure enough, all the questions were, you know, this guy didn't vote for you, he wanted Peter Dutton. He was your um, assistant minister when you were treasurer and he was the assistant minister to the treasurer, but he still didn't want you. He wanted Peter Dutton and, you know, well, that was always so going to happen. so mutual as well because uh, Michael Suker, and he's not alone, didn't want Malcolm Turnbull, mm-hmm. didn't want Scott Morrison. Had a much better idea. Peter Dutton, very obvious better idea was to go for Peter Dutton. A weird thing for a Victorian. I mean, Greg Hunt's in the same boat and it may well cost him in Flinders. Victorians like those two advocate, and I think Jason Wood in Latrobe, bizarrely, those three, the triumvirate of them, were all wanting Dutton uh, initially and not, well, certainly not Turnbull, but they're in a state 
where Malcolm Turnbull was at his most popular. I get the Queenslanders doing the coup. I don't get the Victorians, other than, I guess, Greg Hunt, where there was some self-interest involved because he was going to run for deputy on a ticket with Dutton before it all collapsed. I mean, you make the point that uh, Michael Suker had been the assistant minister to the Treasurer when Mm. Scott Morrison had been the Treasurer and that something must have been going on there because he didn't want Scott Morrison to be Prime Minister. That wasn't his preference. But it cuts both ways because the first thing Prime Minister Scott Morrison did was turn round to a bloke who had this assistant minister role and sack him from the front bench. He did. So he obviously doesn't rate him. And yet there he is out at the garden supply store saying, <laughs> oh, no, no, he's, he's done great things for his local community. Well, I mean, in both directions, what are they supposed to do? You know, the, the PM, a, a PM visit is good for a local member. And so, therefore, Michael Suker wants Scott Morrison to turn up, even if he didn't want him as the PM in any respect. Equally, Scott Morrison may have dumped Suker and he may sort of go there holding his nose, but if he wants to stay PM, he's got to hold Deacon. If he doesn't hold Deacon, he's, he's not staying PM. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. And on the same day, there was Bill Shorten down at uh, Casey Hospital in uh, another Liberal-held uh, marginal in uh, really the, the, the far eastern fringes of, um, of Melbourne, Latrobe. And he got bailed up at his news conference by Rob Gibbs. Hmm. Rob Gibbs, a CFA volunteer or former CFA volunteer, had got a cancer that his doctors say was a consequence of being exposed to chemicals as a volunteer firefighter with a six-year-old daughter in a wheelchair, barefoot, turns up and gives it uh, to Bill Shorten. Was that a moment? It was a moment and it was an interesting one to see the ebb and the flow of it because he turned up, he gave it to Bill Shorten. Bill Shorten tried to then sidle up to him and talk to him and hear his concerns rather than just try to get away. Uh, And then journalists, including one of our own here at 10, started asking the questions, well, you know, back to the civilian, why are you concerned? It turns out his concern was in both directions. He doesn't trust any politician, you know, his ultimate takeout was that, you know, you all promise the world and deliver next to nothing. Uh, You can understand how he feels. Bill Shorten tried to manage the situation, but these things happen on the campaign trail. He got bailed up a few days before that by somebody that was concerned about his negative gearing policy. Uh, That's why they have what are called advances. You know, for anyone listening that sort of wonders about the political process, the journalists are in a, a bus or in the plane they're treated like mushrooms. They don't know where they're going because they, the leaders don't want them to tell anyone and therefore the other side can marshal protesters there. They have what are called advances, paid staffers who hit the spots early, try to get a sense of what these you know supposed meet and greets are going to be like with constituents so that they're not anything too out of the ordinary or unexpected. But the unexpected nice still happens. Yes, exactly. It's very stage managed. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously part of what... Um, Labor's sort of fairer kind of world is that they try to sell is is on cancer and trying to uh, remove out-of-pocket expenses for people who are suffering cancer. And what struck me about that moment with Rob Gibbs was that he went directly at the core of the fairness agenda and the health agenda that Bill Shorten's doing. And he plainly, in real authentic terms gave him a kicking. Mm. And he said, Mr Shorten, how are we to believe your potential government when Mr Andrews has done nothing but make my life hard? He says that Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier, had reneged on a promise to look after CFA volunteers. And he says, honestly, Bill, it's just hard to believe. So he's gone to the credibility of Bill Shorten on one of his key uh, platforms. Yep. He's gone as to whether he's honest 
on the business of caring about people, people suffering from cancer. And it was interesting to see what Shorten did. He said, I want to do better. He said he'd pass on his disappointment <laughs> to Daniel Andrews, uh, but also said, what you're talking about is the exact reason why I'm running for prime minister. And, and then he went and spent some time with Rob Gibbs. And Rob, there's a, there's a photograph which looks like Rob, which has hit the papers, and it looks like Rob has... Uh, shorten has got his hand extended to, to shake his hand. Mm. And it looks like... And Gibbs has got his hands down. He's just kind of looking at him as if he didn't shake his hands. I don't know whether he shook his hand or not, but it's a, it's a moment where it looks as if, you know, he's being told to yeah. wave her off. But what strikes me about that is one of the things that makes Bill Shorten hard to beat, and that is that handled with a little less humility, Bill Shorten's campaign could have exploded in that moment. If he hadn't treated him well, if he'd been high-handed, if he'd tried to brush him off, it would have exploded because and it would have looked like his whole core of his fairness thing counted for nothing. And it's funny how these little things can mean so much, isn't it? You know, that you can catch something on camera or if you have a bad day, you know, you've had an argument in the morning or, you know, you've received some sort of internal word about something that the public might not be aware of but you as a politician or just as a human being, family life, you know, any of this can impact on you. If you don't get it right for that short little moment, the the profound impact it can have and over so many weeks, you know, you can... And in Bill Shorten's case, you can spend six years almost as opposition leader, be close to fault-free and, you know, defy uh, the pundits and, and be on the cusp of becoming Prime Minister. It can all go wrong very suddenly. And we know, and we've talked about this before, people make up their mind late, so those moments matter. Look at Mark Latham, that handshake with John Howard. I mean, his campaign was going down the toilet already, but he started that campaign ahead. That's 54. when he flushed it. <laughs> That's right. He was ahead 54-46. Then it became 52-48. That's where Bill Shorten is now. It was a six-week campaign. The whole mantra from Howard was, who do you trust? And it was all starting to unravel and there was the issues around the CFMEU and forestry issues down in Tasmania, if you remember, in that 04 campaign. And then all of a sudden, walking out of a radio studio, just a hot-blooded moment, he sees John Howard there. He's by the sounds of it, not, not a happy camper with the way things are going. You can see his campaign going to shreds and then in he leans and, you know, Howard plays it beautifully in that very moment, doesn't back away. I remember him telling me when researching for the biography that the thing he was telling himself in that moment was for this to reflect on Latham, don't take a backward step, hold your ground. And if anyone goes and Googles it and looks at the footage, if they haven't seen it or as a reminder, you can see Howard's neck jet back a bit because, you know, Latham's much bigger and he's right up in his face and apparently he really squeezed his hand. But you can see Howard doesn't take a backward step. He's like, no, let him look like he's aggressive, but don't turn the narrative into he put you on the back foot. Uh, and, you know, that... That cost Latham. I mean, he wasn't going to win the election oh, yeah. anyway, but, boy, that added some seats. It to also it justified people's decision that they didn't like him. And it fed into the Liberal ad campaign. If you remember, it was, it was a brilliant campaign. It was all black and white, and then they just had this L-plate that was coloured yellow, as L-plates are, for the start of Latham's name. You know, and it was don't risk it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, you know, it could have gone bad for Bill Shorten. I thought he handled it pretty well. Uh, at that point, his kind of... Ordinary, ordinary kind of plotted demeanor worked for Bill Shorten there. But I remember Bob Hawke uh, famously was, was taken on by some pensioner. Uh, I think he was campaigning in Adelaide somewhere 
and the guy came up and had a good crack at the Prime Minister. Mm. And as, as Bob Hawke turned away, he didn't lose that particular election. I think it was 84. But um, he said, silly old bugger. And it got yeah. picked up by a, by a boom mic. And it looked like at that moment that he was disdaining older Australians or pensioners or something. Well, and he, if it was 84, Hugh, he didn't do as well. I mean, he won every election that he contested, of course, Bob Hawke, because he got rolled internally. But he, the 84 election was probably his worst because, you know, he'd won in the euphoria of 83. He went backwards effectively in 84, even though it was masked by the expansion of the size of the parliament. Um, so he picked up seats, but the Liberals picked up more under Andrew Peacock because they narrowed the two-party vote and all the rest of it. But then he did well in 87 against Howard and even just winning in 1990 was a feat at that point to win four in, on the trot. So that was his worst campaign. So if it was 84 when that happened, you, you wonder the impact that it had. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time, but I've got to say it is interesting to see, you mentioned the Peter Dutton reference. This is the uh, uh, having a crack at uh, Ailey France, the, uh, the amputee candidate who's going up against him. Uh, in Dixon, it is funny how people keep circling round to talk about that, to put it up to uh, to Scott Morrison. And Scott Morrison's reply yesterday was uh, that he's, I'm not going to be drawn into the argy-bargy of disability being used as a political weapon. And that's a really, it's obviously, I think it's a workshop line. Disability shouldn't be used as a political weapon. Now, that sounds like he's been critical of Peter Dutton, but it equally looks like he's, he's trying having to shut down the crack. journalist as well. Yes, and he's, and he's also having a crack at an amputee and the suggestion that she, she you know, she's got a, an artificial leg, a prosthetic leg, and it's almost like suggesting that she's using her disability as a political weapon. You see, I, my take on it, it's interesting you say that because my take on it is that him saying that is a device to shut down the journalist questions. Let's not let this debate degenerate into politicising disability. I stop asking me to explain why I defended Peter Dutton. He's apologised, can't we all move on? I've got some strong views on this. Peter Dutton said the wrong thing. He should have apologised immediately. He didn't. He refused. Then he went to ground. Then he eventually apologised in a tweet. So he's done now, if you like. And only after... Oh, days. Keneally and others We're absolutely him. tore him a new one. Yep. And, and, and he must have looked at that and someone said to him, look, for God's sake... Make this stop. Yep, and and I think he's done himself some enormous damage here. I think Peter Dutton was in the box seat to hold Dixon because he's strong locally, even if he's got this hard man image nationally. But I do think that's going to damage him and his you know his opponent has elevated her now. You know, the hardest thing as a political candidate is to get some name recognition. Well, boy, she's got that now, and he's got some bad press. But I've got strong views on this about Morrison because. Scott Morrison, and don't get me wrong, Bill Shorten was the sort of mindless minister that did that interview on Sky back when Gillard was Prime Minister where he said, I haven't heard what she said, but I agree with it. I mean, how ridiculous. But this is about Morrison now. Morrison gets asked about Dutton before Dutton's apologising and when he's standing by it. He says he was taken out of context. How? He was not taken out of context. That's rubbish. And then he goes to ground as well, doesn't do media on the same day that Dutton wasn't and hopes that the thing then goes away when Dutton apologises. Well, I'm sorry, but I want to know how he came to the view that this was taken out of context. I want to know if he regrets saying that or if he backs away from it. Is he sorry about that? Did he talk to Dutton? Did the PMO talk to Dutton and tell him you have to apologise? How did this all work out? Did he even know what Dutton had said in any detail before his default setting was to just defend him? How does all of this fit with his earlier comments about the need... For in the disability debate to show respect for people with a disability. 
I then hear him now saying, oh, can you all please not politicise the debate about disability? I think that is him politicising the debate about disability because he's trying to take the high moral ground to shut down questioning when he's driven the low road with what he said at the time before Peter Dutton did issue his apology. So, anyway, this, the dogs will bark, the caravan will roll on, but he's showing his skills as an ex-state director and party hack, dare I say, uh, in the way that he's trying to slide his way through this, and I think it's unbecoming. And doubtless it is a moment in this campaign. Peter Van Onselen, the professor, good to talk to you as always. Same on this end. We'll talk next time. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 